Hi guys and welcome to episode 29 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Now this is a really interesting episode, it's Tour de France, so we obviously wanted to do a couple of things focused around that. So the first one is around lightweight aero bikes, something that we're increasingly seeing in the peloton and something that as we are seeing more companies release their 2023 models, that that is becoming more synonymous. So, for instance, we've got the new Scott Foil, we've got the new Trek Madone, uh, which are essentially becoming, you know, a mixture of climbing and aero. And it's a really interesting conversation. We discuss some of the limitations of them, some of the potential impacts of them, and what this kind of means for the wider N plus one. Does it actually mean that we're moving to an N minus one bike situation? Suvi, who is one of our staff writers at Offroad CC, also spoke to Joram Kolf and Nisa Nijbrook, apologies if I've mispronounced those names, um, about everything to do with cycling nutrition. So really interesting to talk to those guys about how to fuel effectively for rides, races, all this different kind of stuff. Um, now it's worth noting that in the first part of the podcast where I'm talking to Liam, Matt and Jamie, this was being recorded in the office and the acoustics aren't particularly great so apologies if the sound quality isn't quite up to our usual standard. Um, I promise next time we record I'm going to make sure that those guys have proper mics and that they're completely surrounded by I don't know, egg boxes or something like that. So here it is, episode 29 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. Today I am joined by Matt, Jamie and Liam and we're here to discuss kind of not necessarily a, uh, a kind of brand new trend but something that we've kind of noticed quite a lot over the last few seasons um, which is the, the kind of rise of the lightweight aero bike. So Jamie wrote a really interesting article about this a few days ago. So Jamie do you want to give us a bit of a lowdown on, on the article itself? Yeah, so a few years ago, we saw an, an aero bike and a lightweight bike being used by pro teams. And the sprinters would be using the aero bike and the climbers would almost always be on the lightweight climbing bike. But that's obviously changed recently. Um, the Tarmac SL7, for example, uh, the three World Tour teams using specialized bikes use the SL7 for every single stage, whether it's a sprint stage, a hilly stage or in the high mountains. And yeah, so we're seeing lighter and lighter aero bikes. We've seen uh, the Scott Foil released recently. Uh, the Spello S5's got lighter. What other ones have we seen? Giant Propel yeah. and it looks a lot lighter. That's not released yet, but it looks lighter. It looks a lot more like a TCR. Um, and yeah, we're just seeing weight cut off of these aero bikes. And at some point, the, the climbing bikes are going to become obsolete because there's still the UCI weight limit of 6.8 kilos. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting point because there does seem to be, I mean, I guess in general, across all bikes, there does seem to be this, I mean, whether we're talking about aero bikes that are also lightweight, whether we're talking about gravel bikes that are also really fast on the road, there does weirdly seem to be a trend towards N minus one. You know, we're kind of go. We're kind of going into the upside down. 
in terms of uh, you know what, what we've generally been used to. So Matt, as the tech editor, in terms of this N minus one that we're seeing, what kind of, I mean, what are your perspectives on it? Yeah, I mean, there is a hugely a move towards, in the racing arena, you know, in the performance bike arena, things are very definitely moving in that direction. Uh, and I've been doing it for the last couple of years. Um, and everyone else who hasn't yet that kind of bike seems to be moving towards it. So in the last few days in this Tour de France, we've seen the new giant Propel. Giant, the Propel is the aero bike, the TCR is lightweight bike, but the Propel is not officially launched yet. We don't know anything about it other than what we've seen, but it's, uh, it's very much a slimmed down version of the previous uh, version of the Propel. And the reason for that, it will almost certainly be, you know, they're going to sell it as the lightest Propel ever or something along those lines. Um, because, you know, it used to be, oh, you want a bike that's aero, or you want a bike that's light. And everyone's decided, no, we want both things. We'll have them both. So um, what you got? So um, and everyone's moving in that direction. The um, one big brand that's not is perhaps Pinarello because they've never really strayed away from that focus in the first place. Uh, their dogma has always been the lightweight and the aero model. They didn't separate things. So, um, you know, maybe they were right all along. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, there are a few because, yeah, Pinarello have always had that kind of one. But then when you when we look at... Um, I'm thinking particularly of Cannondale, so they've got the System 6 and the Super 6. But when you look at the new Super 6, you know, there's definitely, I mean, it's definitely, you can tell it's nowhere near as aero as something like a, yeah, as something like a, you know, the new, the new Scott Foil, for instance. But then at the same time, when you compare it to the old Super 6, it's massively more aero. So, I mean, do you think that we're likely to, I mean, it does seem to, do we think that this is kind of going to be, a trend moving forward, or do we think that this is kind of essentially a bit of a flash in the pan? I'd, I'd say it is going to be a trend moving forward. Um, because everyone's moving in that direction, what, why would you diverge again? Um, you'd have to have a reason to diverge again. And it seems like the last Czech Imonda became more arrows, a new Czech Madone. <laughs> the last Czech Imonda became more arrows, the new Czech Madone has become more lightweight, although it's not. And they're never going to quite meet in the middle, but things are moving in that direction. And there'd have to be a good reason not to, and I don't really see why that would be. While we've got the UCI 6.8 kilogram minimum weight limit in place, uh, if you can uh, have an aero bike that hits that limit, then why would you not? Yeah, it's true. Um, I mean, Liam, you've got some hot takes. I do. I have some opinions on this. Um, first of all, the UCI weight limit of 6.8 kg is completely limiting progress for those lightweight bikes um, because, rightly or wrongly, road, uh, road bikes are led by the road racing scene, uh, the pro professional road racing scene. So it's no surprise that what we've got as consumers are these kind of um, lightweight aero bikes, but 
realistically, I think for a lot of cyclists that ride semi-competitively, maybe they do sport teams or maybe they do a local road race or something, you don't need an aero road bike. You just don't need it. It does not make a difference if you cannot already sustain your FTP or whatever breakaway power you've got to put down in an aero position. Because remember, most of aero is, what, 70% is you. So it doesn't matter if your bike is two watts faster than the old model. If, you know, you're sitting up into the wind and your chest is catching air, your chest is not aero. So personally, I, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a flash in the pan, I think, because I think bikes like the specialized ethos, which is a round tube bike that's lightweight and it focuses on handling. And it's the one that I've literally this morning bought. So I, may, I maybe have a slight, a slight <laughs> opinion on this. Um, but I think bikes like that, as soon as the UCI drops the weight limit, bikes like that will be massively popular with general riders because they will show people just how nice a bike can be when you park aero. Fine, if you want to do aero, you've got to be aero, you've got to wear an aero hat, you've got to wear an aero skin suit. But they're all the important things before you go, oh, yeah. Can I make my frame set five watts faster? Mm. I, I would say I'm looking at the aerodynamicist in the room and hoping that he's going to agree, but I suspect he's not because he has an aero road bike. <laughs> I, I just think that um, aero road bikes have got so much better recently, with, not just weight, but with comfort as well. Um, there, there was probably only seven or eight years ago, an aero road bike would absolutely rattle you to pieces and that's why we never saw them used in the Paris-Roubaix or anything like that that original score for was disgustingly hard a lot of them were <laughs> and these days the that even the aero road bikes are quite compliant they're quite comfortable compared to bikes of old and that's why we see them used for nearly all the stages on the Tour de France but I don't get for the normal person why you would go, oh, yeah, I need to spend what is effectively five grand on a frame set and hike your prices up like that when you don't necessarily need aero. You could just have something that's comfier, lighter, and handles much, much nicer, but no cheaper. I get where Liam's coming from on this, but the road bike market is so driven by what professionals ride, rightly or wrongly. Um, you know, most of us would be better off on something with a more relaxed geometry than we actually ride, maybe. Uh, a cheaper bike than a lot of us ride, uh, a more durable bike. But we don't necessarily do the, uh, the most sensible thing in our buying decisions. Sometimes we just, we're fixed on, ah, oh, the pros are riding, the pros are fast. Therefore, I want to ride that because I want to be fast. So, you know, there are bikes that are like specialized ethos that chuck away the idea of the uh, racing limits, for example. Um, and 
probably sensibly say, well, we don't care about them because they don't really apply to us. But um, that doesn't mean to say that everyone's going to make their buying decisions based on sensible factors because yeah. because history shows that we, we probably don't. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm looking at the gravel bike because it's the one... I say it's the one thing that I'm missing from my stable. It's the one thing I'm missing from my stable until I'm missing something else that I really want to buy. But the one thing, what I'm, what I find is that I don't know why I'm instinctively drawn towards stuff that looks aero because it looks cool. It's like the Batmobile looked cool because it had all of those like, you know, straight lines and all of the kind of, you know, the cleanness. And I think aero bikes, they generally look cleaner. They generally look cooler so i think that's possibly it i think uh, yeah so it's i want to look like i'm going fast even though i'm probably 10 kilos overweight uh but you know that doesn't matter because my bike looks good a lot of our buying decisions are made with the eyes you know you go in you make a buying decision based on a bike that you like the look of uh and even things that will come into it like everyone will make um their buying decisions based on trivial things but you know you've got to like the look of it you've got to like you've even got to like the color of it in mm. nine times out of ten unless you're purely performance driven cyclist who only cares about you know huge efficiency then you know we want to buy that we feel good on and it makes us feel good when we look at it you know and we and by by uh we think by osmosis that makes us look good as well yeah i think the gravel market actually george is one of the places that kind of demonstrates the need to actually consider what you as a rider need from your bike rather than just looking at our, what's his name, Peter Statino or something, uh, is racing this bike and he won blah, blah race, so I need that bike. It's Especially for us in the UK or certain pockets of the UK, there isn't maybe a, a gravel network that we would think of in North America. So the bike there and the bike here, it's going to be completely different. And so if we take the things that we can see from the gravel market and kind of apply it to the road market in terms of tire clearance, the geometry, I think the thing that Matt said about maybe buying an endurance bike over a full-on racer, well, if you're going to run that racer with a ton of spacers under the steering tube, it isn't going to handle as the manufacturer intended. And we do like to, you know, make fun of the manufacturers from time to time. But they, they do know how to make bikes, thankfully. And so if you decide to run it with a geometry that's completely alien to what the bike was designed as, you're not going to get the bike that they intended you to ride. So you may as well have the endurance model. And it's probably going to come... I'm speaking for the majority of our listeners who I would say are probably more endurance um, bike riders than full-on racers. Those bikes are going to be more suitable than whatever the pros are racing at the Tour de France today. Although then again, most of the pros, as we speak, are racing the endurance bikes because they're going over the Roubaix problems. It's very true. I mean, I think I think the gravel market is a really interesting one at the moment because we are seeing different companies trying to do the same things that they've done with road bikes. So the new three, well, I don't know how, the 3T Explorer 
the, his, you know, the big thing that they're saying at the moment is it's the first properly aero gravel bike. Now, to me, when I think of gravel, I don't think of aero. I think of suspension. I think of tire clearance, all that kind of stuff. So it's, I mean, it's interesting to see whether the market's going to kind of going to develop in that same way of like that, because ultimately it's moving from essentially something that I would quite easily be able to say in a review, yes, this is more comfortable versus at the moment when I test anything aero, I'm kind of like, well, I'm sure it is, but you can't actually tell. Um, so it's, it's interesting because it's not, it's obviously not completely, um, it's not an abstract, but it's something that's kind of, you can't necessarily tell the difference unless you're you know, doing a time trial over an hour and can actually test whether you get that extra two seconds or what, what was it that, um, the Madonas was it, uh, was it a minute over 60, a minute over 60, over, over a, you know, I mean, we could we could get all into the wording of aero claims around bikes because we have this every time. A minute over an hour. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we could all go down the. I mean, if we really, really wanted to, and because we were, you know, because we were talking about specialised, we could always get ourselves some um, attractive looking balaclavas if we yes. really wanted to get yeah. ourselves aero. Yeah. Yeah. Shave our heads. Shave our eyebrows. Wear. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a balaclava. Matt, maybe you could start us off. Do you think that lightweight aero bikes, you think, or aero bikes in general now, do you think that they are pointless or necessary? Uh, I don't think they're pointless at all, no. And I think, you know, so in the past, you've had, oh, yeah. from a manufacturer's point of view, are we going to go lightweight or are we going to go aero? Well, now we can't go lightweight or any more lightweight because most um, bikes are at the limit or near enough at the limit there's no gains to be made in that direction so the only real gains you can make are in terms of aerodynamics so it's no surprise that over the last few years we've seen everything moving in that direction and um, they'll continue to do so once UCI lower the uh, minimum weight limit uh, whatever if you take it down to six kilos all of a sudden there's going to be an arms race to get down to six kilos but if and when that happens they'll worry about that then for the time being aero has got to be the way forward hmm. jamie how about you i like aero um, <laughs> just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there and when you're riding along there's only two things slowing you down and that's your rolling resistance and your tyres make the contact patch to about a two-pence piece. So fairly minimal, uh, especially at high speeds. And aerodynamics, that is also what's slowing you down. And I don't think there's many people that don't enjoy riding faster for less energy. So why wouldn't you want aero? And with these bikes getting lighter, it's just less of a compromise. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I mean, what my one of my favourite things is the difference in... You know, when I move from my winter wheels to my summer wheels and suddenly I get that hum back, that's, that's you know, that is a thing of beauty. Um, so, Liam, as the exact antithesis of that, do you think that they're a waste? Let's say I think that they're a waste for the majority of um, cyclists or the majority of people that actually buy them. Um, if you are given 
one of these uh, aero lightweight bikes and you're racing, then fine. You're probably already riding in an aero position, you've got aero clothing, and it's just a little bit more of a game for you to have. But realistically, for, for the majority of us that just like going out on our bikes, I would always prioritize a good geometry, um, lower weight, um, and uh, comfort over aero, just because it's going to actually make your ride nicer. And yeah. you might lose 1 kph off your average speed. Collective Bicycle Cover by Lacquer exists to rewrite the rules of insurance so it's something people stand with not against. Lacquer has been voted best cycling insurance provider for the last four years running. No excess, no depreciation, no contract, no funky fine print, and a five-star rated customer service. An experience so good you might actually want to claim. So, whether it's a pothole that's buckled your wheel, some knob that nicked your bike, or an airline who's lost your gear, you can be sure Lacquer has got your back. New customers can get 30 days free bicycle insurance using the code ROADCCPOD30. So my name is Lisa Nijbroek and I did my bachelor's years ago in nutrition and dietetics. So when I was a young kid, I always thought like I wanted to become a professional athlete, but I didn't knew in which kind of sport. So I tried tennis, but like soon enough, I figured out I wasn't good enough. So then I thought, okay, I wanted to combine nutrition on the highest level. So I started with my bachelor in nutrition and dietetics, uh, then did my master's in uh, human movement science, but then also specialized again in nutrition part. Uh, and then I got the opportunity to start working uh, at a professional cycling team. So I did that five years full time. That's also where I met Joram actually. Um, so now I'm not working anymore for that team. I'm still working for prof in professional cycling though. Um, and then working also together with Joram, which is also very nice to combine. And you actually, I think you even started as a cook because it's quite yeah. hard to get into such teams. So you you took that yeah. opportunity to make promotion afterwards, right? Yeah, so that's true. So I was like done with my studies and I knew like I wanted to work in professional sports and I wanted to work in a sport where at least nutrition is that people should do something with nutrition. So like in cycling, the riders need to do something because otherwise after two hours, they, yeah, they are just blocked. Uh, so And I got the opportunity actually to start a work experience place, which was rewarded with a full-time opportunity to stay there. But then I had to combine like um, the guidance of the riders together with actually cooking at the races. Oh. Uh, well, I'm definitely not a cook myself. So I did that for <laughs> one year. And then I also said to the guys, it's, it's really nice actually uh, to learn and also to see what's happening at a race. But it's definitely something different to cook rather than having the knowledge what should be put on the plate and it was just really hard to combine those two jobs so i said like i really do want to stay in cycling but i'm not going to cook anymore uh, but actually next week i'm leaving to altitude Sierra Nevada, <laughs> where i do have to cook again for four <laughs> days so um yeah i'm still doing some cooking but it's really like a minimum amount yeah so i worked the past uh, five years for team dsm previous previously that was team somewhere uh, and now i work for quickstep alpha Vanille. it's a belgium team yeah cool yeah so uh, my name is uh, joram i'm one of the founders of eat my ride i have a background in um, 
market research and AI. Uh, and I started the company because I like doing uh, big cycling races and Grand Fondos. And I know um, that nutrition is, is a blocker. Um, so, so that made me enthusiastic. And when we uh, started the company, we thought, well, maybe we can learn a lot from the pros. So we reached out to uh, Team DSM. And actually, before that, we did a small uh, Kickstarter project uh, to see if people are willing to uh, to, to, to use this uh, uh, product. And then one of the uh, yeah, bigger pros, uh, it's called Wilco Kelderman. He then wrote for Team Sunweb. He reached out to us and he paid for the Kickstarter. And he said, well, maybe this is also something for my team. So that's how we got introduced to the team, to the CEO and to the whole staff. And that's how we learned uh, to, to work with Lisa. And uh, after Lisa uh, left the team, she started working with us. So that's how we got to know each other. That is a good, good combination there. And about Eat My Ride, would you, Joram, would you want to tell just a brief kind of snippet of what is it actually the app? Because you mentioned that you're the founder, but the listeners yeah. might not know what is the app about. Eat My Right is a nutrition app for cyclists that helps you to keep your muscles full of um, carbohydrates because that's crucial, not only to avoid hitting the wall, but also to keep your, your powers on the pedal for a long time. So with the app, you can either uh, plan your ride and the whole day around your ride or track your energy burn and nutrition intake during the ride or evaluate it afterwards. So the whole purpose of this is to be aware of your own behavior with regards to nutrition and improve it. That is a great, great overview of what it does. And that brings us neatly into the first question about nutrition in cycling. What do we actually need? So you are the experts really. Can you tell a little bit about what do we need when we are cycling and what, what are the important bits in, in cycling nutrition? So Joram touched already like slightly up on it. So basically what we need as cyclists, like the main fuel is carbohydrates. So like when we are doing a ride, people burn fat and carbohydrates as fuel. Uh, and it's based on the intensity and duration, how it deviates. So if you, if you do low intensity, you um, burn mostly fat, but the higher the intensity, the more you rely on carbohydrates as your fuel. But the only problem is you have like limited stores of carbohydrates, so we can store it in our body. Uh, that's called glycogen. Uh, and we can store like for roughly up till one and a half hours. So that would mean if you do like a three hour ride, you do need to take extra carbohydrates on the bike because otherwise after one and a half hour, approximately you will be like hitting the wall. While for example, for fats, um our storages are like much bigger so we actually have storages for some weeks that we rely on fat as a fuel uh, so it's the carbohydrates that we uh, that we mostly need if we do a ride on the bike yeah and and then maybe to add to that um so as as, as lisa said eh, you always burn in a combination of body fats and carbohydrates and as you can see in our app eat my ride uh, you can see for each intensity what that roughly means and imagine you ride slowly or you go very fast. It, it means like, well, at least a 400% increase in carbohydrates. So it's really huge. And if you do a short ride, short, say of two or maybe three hours, you know, eating a bit might help you uh, good enough. But if the ride becomes longer, 
it, the effect is so much uh, stronger, you know, because your your uh, um, um, your, your um, stomach is already emptied, uh, and when you need all those carbohydrates, it's also important to look at what kind of carbohydrates. So you have fructose and, and, and glucose. Um, so yeah, the more intense it is and the longer it is, it's, it, the more important it is to take and enough, take it in time and take the right products. So with our, pro with our Eat My Right app, we try to make that simple for the consumer. And with the intensity, this how how would you measure because as an everyday cyclist you might not have a power meter or some might not even have a heart rate monitor but like you said it would depend are you going high intensity or low intensity would you have an advice on that how can you measure it because you don't have heart rate or power meter like these kind of technical devices to to measure how hard is it what how to decide how hard are you going what would you need I think there is a generic ad advice. Uh, I think that uh, Lisa, correct me if I'm wrong, but if, if the ride is up to uh, one and a half, two hours, you, you, you take 30 grams of carbohydrate. If it's between two and three hours, you take 60 grams of carbohydrate. And if it's longer, you try to take 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour, uh, which sounds really simplistic uh, and easy, but uh, just try it. Try to eat 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour for three hours long. If you've never done that, you will for sure uh, get intestinal issues so it's not that easy yeah and maybe to visualize indeed if you speak about 30 60 or 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour i can imagine for people uh, that some people have like no idea how does that look like in products but if you have for example 90 grams which what you're talking about then you talk about like a bottle of sports drinks uh, a bar and a gel. Usually it's a little bit dependent per brand, but most of the brands try to aim for around 30 grams of carbohydrate in a product. Uh, and that's also with a reason for the consumer to, so that they can easily calculate, okay, if I take three products, I have those 90 grams. But indeed that's really difficult. And also you need to train your gut system because if you take three bars an hour and you do a ride for three hours, which means nine, nine bars, but you've never done it before, very likely that you will will end up somewhere halfway the right with some uh, stomach complaints. Yeah, and I also think that if, if the intake you need is high, it's it's more logical to also take fluids, yeah. right? So not take three bars in an hour, but but also put powders in your bottle. And especially with those new, pro new products like Martin has or Beta Fuel, you can even put around 80 grams of carbohydrates in one bottle. Yeah. So that just makes it easier to digest. Yeah. But indeed, from a practical point of view, what you usually see with people going on the bike, like they go for the training ride and they have like usually two bottles, which they take from the start. So if people are smart, they fill those bottles with like sports drinks. But if you do a four hour ride, it means roughly after two hours, like your bottle of sports drink is empty. And that's also the moment where usually people refill with water. But that also means that you have to eat more in those hours because you don't get your carbs out of the drink again. And that's something what people sometimes also forget uh, and end up like eating too little. So the most essential thing for planning nutrition is planning. Yeah, I think two, two things, planning and practicing also. Because yeah. you can make a really nice plan, but if you never practiced before, um, then also the plan doesn't make any sense.
Yeah. I think what happens a lot is you are used to something, and right? you have a type of behavior, and well, you, usually that's eating one product per And when you're at home and you do a ride of three hours, you you will survive. But then you go on holiday or you go to a race, and it gets longer and it gets heavier. Uh, then you need to be flexible, and that's what lots of people don't do. Uh, and if they do, they suddenly switch to a completely different brand, different product, a lot more on a race, which is intense in itself without any practice. And that's just very risky. So start to become flexible, learn to understand for every ride, what do you need and, and adjust to that. So in terms of when do you start eating, what, what start time would you recommend just when you start riding? When you start. Or... So yeah. when you're waiting for the start line, then you eat. And then when you have started, I would say after 30 minutes, if you can, or maybe 45. Yeah. 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 And it's also what we also hear, or at least what I hear often is, for example, professional cyclists, they take like their breakfast well in advance before the race. So they take like, they have three, four hours in between also to make sure that the breakfast is already like digested a little bit and that they don't start like totally full at the race. And it also helps them to directly start eating from the beginning of the race onwards. But what you also see with people who just do like a cyclocross or any other race, that they have their breakfast relatively short time before they actually start their race. Because sometimes also the race is already like really early in the morning and you also don't want to wake up like 4 a.m. in the middle of the night. But that also makes that you still have a relatively full feeling at the start of the race which also makes it difficult to start eating from the beginning onwards. So it's, but do you think that is performance wise that that's detrimental that you would have your breakfast to or meal before your ride? Or do you think it's just that the, it's more like psychological that then you wouldn't feel the urge to eat? Yeah, it's both because also if you do eat like relatively short before the race, then the body hasn't had the time like to take up all those carbohydrates. It also means that you have, again, a higher risk of getting complaints while being on the bike because your body is still busy with digesting breakfast, but also oxygen is needed like for your working muscles. So it's more, you are more on the safe side if you have like enough time in between breakfast and the race, both for like carbohydrate use on the bike, as well as lowering the risk of uh, getting complaints. And in terms of, um, Lisa, you've touched on cyclocross quite a few times, but you, I know that there's, um, it's mostly road cycling that you maybe focus on, but in terms of off-road riding, gravel or mountain biking, do you think that there's different nutritional needs for riding those? Yeah, well, we, we actually had, I would used to work with one cyclocross rider. He did, he combined like road and cyclocross. That's also what you see with some professional guys that they combine those two. And if you talk about cyclocross, it's usually like an hour going full gas. So the, the total energy expenditure is of course lower than if you do like a six hour ride on the road. Uh, but if you talk about, for example, gravel rides, which can also be like really long, especially during those rides is usually much more difficult to take in like your cars because you have like the bumpy road or more bumpy road than you would usually have during um, a road race. So it's an extra element or 
it can be extra difficult to make sure that you do take enough carbohydrates uh, during the ride. But it's not specifically that you would need like different amounts. Uh, but I think practically it can be more difficult uh, for people doing like off-road rides to take in all the carbohydrates that they would actually need. So that was episode 29 of the Road CC podcast in association with Lacquer. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, apologies for the sound quality with uh, the aero bike chat. It turns out that the acoustics in the Road CC office, especially when we've got three of the four people sitting within around three meters of one another is not ideal, but I'm hoping you guys enjoyed it anyway. I think some of the content in it was really interesting, mainly from the other three. And yeah, I think that the discussion that Suvi had with Yoram and Lisa was really insightful. As the weather's been getting hotter, there's more events on, more people need to understand how to fuel themselves properly. And to be honest, there's probably not many people better to hear that from than those two. So I hope you guys found some really useful stuff from it. Uh, and I also think it's particularly important to think about when we're in these current heat waves as well, because it's not just going to be a case of keeping yourself hydrated. This really drains you, as I've found uh, in the last couple of rides that I've done, where I've come back not only sweating buckets, but also feeling pretty faint. So, yeah, lesson learned there. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast as much as I did. And until next time, cycle safe. Bye.